Thank you for joining today for a new episode of the podcast as a part of every quarter season. Today's guest will be Angela. So could you please introduce yourself? My name is Angela Rivera Druick and I'm an I'm a, an attorney in Tallahassee. Uh, right now I do family law with a, a legal aid organization, but in the past I've done criminal defense. Um, I've worked with the Florida House just um, like reviewing and analyzing bills and a little bit of work with DBPR, like professional licenses, just on their reviewing board. And I think that's all of my experience. Um, I guess, I don't know if you want to know a little bit about why I wanted to be an attorney or anything like that, just as an introduction, but I can. Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) Well, I mean, for me, that wasn't something that I thought about as a child where I always knew I wanted to be an attorney, but I did always like to argue and figure out puzzles and, you know, kind of learn almost everything there is to know about a subject so you can figure it out. And when I was in college, I think right after, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And my mom said, well, why don't you just go, you know, be an attorney, you like to argue. And so instead of doing that, I went to uh, TCC and I learned paralegal studies and I volunteered with a, a law firm. And I did eventually decide I wanted to go to law school and be an attorney because I liked helping people. And I think the world needs more attorneys that have experienced the world or lived, lived a little bit of life so that they can show more compassion for people that are going through um, life issues that touch in the, touch into the legal world, because I think a lot of attorneys, it's work. And I think some of what we do, some areas of the law, it's not just work, it's somebody's life. So that's why I do what I do. Yeah. Um, so do you want to get right, go right into the questions? Sure. Do you, are you going to ask them and then I answer or? Um, yeah. Okay. That okay. sounds good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you think the United States women's overall rights are compared with other countries since like Iceland ranks like number one gender equality in the world, um, while the US is not in the top 10. So like, what do you think about that? Um, I wasn't really surprised that we're not in the top 10. Um, I think for as much as we want to be leaders in the world, we have a lot to learn. Um, I did look up that we were 30th, so we're, we're not too far from the top, but I mean, I do see where it's in my field and I think a lot of others, I mean, women are underpaid compared to men. And I mean, I think that might be the greater issue of um, like just not being able to know in the private sector what people make. It's a lot of, um, how people feel about you. And I think a a lot less of that would go on if um, like the private sector were more transparent in pay and salary uh, compared to like the government sector where in Florida, at least you get to see what everyone in the government makes. And that lends itself to more honesty and more equality because um, it's it's black and white. You can see it on paper. So I I think it's, uh, we're not 
we're not on the in the top, but we're not on the bottom. So I think that's a good thing that um, I did see that we moved up. I, I think that was also something I noted where we moved up quite a bit, it looks like. Um, so we're trying, we're addressing the issues and not um, doing things that move us down the list. So I think that's good. And what do you think about equal pay? Do you feel like um, in your area of work, women are underpaid? And if they are underpaid, what can be done? Um, I, th I think that in America, that's probably something that's across the board. Women are, are still probably underpaid in most areas. I think in the legal field, I would say as an attorney, we are probably underpaid. Um, I feel like there are more women in places of, of authority that can affect change in that area and be more equal. Um, but I think in the private sector, uh, because it's it's so easy to keep salaries and 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 pay private and secret, that it's um, it's easy to uh, not address that gap because no one knows. I mean, I it's I don't necessarily I'm not able to go ask my neighbor uh, without seeming rude. Hey, how much do you make? Um, and then kind of see if if you know, if they're making more or less based on maybe their experience versus, hey, they they seem like they're a guy who just seem more assertive um, than me, and I may have more experience, but somehow they're getting more money. Um, it's, I don't think we have those conversations um, in the private sector. So I think it's an issue, but I mean, in order to really know, I have to poke around and and just talk to people um, and kind of get that idea uh, or get that uh, knowledge, which can be hard. Yeah, and do you think menstrual products should be free for everyone, such as in workplaces, schools, and government buildings? And if yes, how should the government pay for it? And that was an interesting question. I never thought about that um, before now, but I mean, I think they should be. Um, I have a daughter who is just now starting to, you know, get into that stage. And to think that she doesn't, she wouldn't have access to something that basic, um, that is a hindrance. Like if, if you're dealing with something um, that can give you embarrassment or even cause you pain um, and, and they take away your ability to focus um, because you're worrying about something that a lot of people can get something easily and address that. Um, I think that does affect how young women grow up and participate in society and in, in our educational institutions because it's it would be like um, worrying about where your next meal would be would be coming from and you're trying to take a test or you're trying to concentrate on this or you're trying to go somewhere um, and maybe study but you don't know what you're gonna eat because you haven't eaten in days or you don't you don't have the access that you need to food. I, I think I would put it on a similar level if you can't get access to menstrual products. So I do, I had a little bit of a struggle with um, how do you pay for that? Um, because I mean, it's something that I think we need, but whether or not you want the federal government to tackle that versus maybe the local governments. 
Um, I guess that's a question that I'm going to have to think about it. I really would think the local governments, uh, maybe cities, towns, um, would be the best. I would think they would be the best um, government um, to handle that because, I mean, you know your population uh, more intimately than maybe the federal government that has to deal with the whole nation. Um, and I would think, we, I mean, the cities and towns deal with parks and they they have like um, school boards, local school boards that handle schools and, and how to address what schools need. So, I mean, I think the maybe locally might be a way to tackle that problem. How do we get um, children the supplies they need every month? So I don't know if I can give you an answer, but I can give you maybe a start to the question. Yeah, and then kind of going off of that, do you think that there was a period poverty in the United States? You know, I had to kind of research what that is. And I, I mean, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, have you gotten a sense, have you done a little bit of research into the kind of access that girls have in school? I mean, I didn't have, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to my own high school experience or middle school. And I mean, I remember seeing maybe something in the bathrooms where girls had access, but I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know if it's, it was like a quarter, like a paid, like there was a paywall to get to that access or if there was a way, maybe you go to the school nurse and say, I'm having an issue and they would have extra extra um, products for you to, to take. So that's something that, um, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't remember any kids that were out regularly, maybe at, at a certain period of time because they didn't have access to that. So that one I'm, I'm not sure of, um, but I would hope that um, something like that is something that um, we as Americans have at least addressed a little bit. So maybe you can help me understand better on whether, where America, where the US stands in that, that area. Yeah, um, I mean, I think there might be like a little, because like I'm also kind of looking back on my own experiences and I don't think personally that there was adequate education about it because I know a lot of people like don't know like different ways to like use different products like for example like I know a lot of people like don't know how to like use tampons and stuff and um yeah just I think the education system around that could be improved and regarding like lack of access um I mean I think because like period products like are kind of expensive for some people so like I think maybe like I wouldn't necessarily know how the government would go about this, but maybe um, giving more access to um, to those products to people who can't necessarily afford them. So, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. And uh, now that you say that, um, that made me think of, um, especially during the pandemic. I know the government probably gave subsidies to internet providers like Comcast to offer 
like the free version of their services so that um, more children could get access to like the online um, education that we had to, to go through during the pandemic and when everyone was on lockdown, but we still had to you know, figure out how to get some kind of education to the kids. Um, I mean, something like that might be a way to address it too, just to go to the, the vendors, the, re the retail stores and say, you know, I mean, have this section, have this free version, and then we'll subsidize it. I mean, that could be a way to make it a federal, um, like a, a federal way to address it. So, I mean, that might be a good option, but the education parts, I mean, I, I didn't know how to use like a tampon too when I was in high school. So, um, but I, but I do remember, I think, and I hope they still have sex education so that um, kids have some basic idea of what they don't just uh, try to figure it out themselves. I mean, I would think maybe we could expand that so that um, we can make sure all girls know how that works as well. Yeah, and do you think women should have free access to non-prescription birth control or, and why or why not? I mean, I think they should. Um, I, I think I would think back to um, like in the, maybe before it became so widely accepted just to even use birth control where women were doing things that um, created a danger to their bodies um, if something happened and they got pregnant. Um, I mean, I think we can't ignore the reality that people will have sex and, you know, what we don't want to address the problem after there's a life in, in play that um, maybe not, I don't want to say could be prevented, but uh, if we're giving women the choice to um, like have, have sex and to, to be free with their bodies and have that be acceptable, then I think we also have to have it be acceptable that um, they be allowed to make smart choices that don't don't cause them to put their lives in danger because they're in a situation where they they don't want the results. Um, they're not ready for the result, but um, there's I mean, if you do nothing, that's where that's the result that's going to happen. So I think I mean I think that would be a smarter course to help, I mean, because the, the issue that I have is what do you do with children that weren't planned for, but they're here and now you have to figure out how to make sure that they get the kind of loving home that I think they're entitled to just, just by being born. Like, I mean, you wanna be born into a loving home and, and that to have that opportunity, um, so, I mean, what do you do in that situation when you could have avoided it uh, from the get-go? And then when um, a woman's ready and she's, she's set up her life um, to be in a place where she wants and she thinks she has a loving home to give a child, then, then I mean, you get, you get happier children. Um, you get children maybe that... Um, Maybe that takes care of some of the other um, issues like um, pay equality, 
um, because now you have children that are, are, are in a world where the mom is not having to struggle to figure out how to feed her kids. And then she can worry about things that um, uh, maybe will, um, what am I trying to say? Like she can worry about demanding better because it's not just about, I need food on the table, but um, I, I want to, I get to choose the work that I want to do. And now I, I get to demand that I be paid for it because um, to be paid better for it or more equal for it, because I'm not just trying to feed like, you know, this, this child that I, I love, but maybe I didn't plan for. Um, and so then you have um, a, a situation like that where it could also lead to maybe parents have more time for children. They can, if, if, if that's something that they can educate themselves on with the period poverty situation, now they can figure out maybe the schools that they wanted to take their children to that might address that. Um, so I, I mean, I think it could, could flow into other things that we didn't expect. It, have, it could have unanticipated results when you give women, um, I guess the option, all of the options, like it's not just the option to use your, do, do with your body what you want, but also the option to get the healthcare and the, the products that you need to make sure that you are taking care of your body the way you want. Yeah, and what do you think about the U.S. policy for new mothers compared with other countries such as Canada and Western European countries? Should women get at least three months of paid maternal leave? And what are the pros and cons of this policy? Um, having just had a child a year ago, I guess maybe two years ago now, um, it would have been nice if three months of paid leave. Uh, I was in a situation where I started, I just started my job, so... Um, it, I was too soon to take advantage of any kind of paid leave. And I had to use the leave that I had earned when I gave birth, which was very hard because it wasn't that much. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I'm a little conflicted there because I think it would be, it would be good to have um, mothers be able to take leave, but then I wouldn't want to leave fathers out. So I mean, then how do you deal with it uh, where you have two people out of the workforce for a period of time? How do you address that? Um, because you want, you want businesses to thrive, but you want people to thrive too. So, I mean, I, I guess that would be a, the con side of it is, I mean, the business would have to replace that workforce that they're... Um, letting have leave and still be productive. Um, and in the back end, I think they would be because then you have happier parents and people who want to come in and give more of their all because this business looked out for them. I mean, you're, you're more loyal to people who are loyal to you. So, I mean, I think in the long run, it's, it's probably just a smart business model to look after your workers and the people that um, help you thrive and do well. Um, but in the short run, like you have to figure out how do you keep going when you're missing that labor force and that, that productivity. Um, 
I, I imagine, I think, um, and you'll probably have to help me. I think Canada probably does a little better with, um, new mothers. Um, but what, um, I mean, what have you seen with like Canada and Western European countries that, that differs, like just to explain to me a little there, because I, I mean, I would think that they probably have better policies in, in protecting new mothers than we do, but that mm. might be. Yeah, I can't really remember like this, like specifically, but um, most of the Western European countries in Canada, like um, do um, have like better policies for new mothers. Like for example, like sometimes um, in the US, like, like different companies have like different policies, but sometimes like it won't be very fair for them. Um, and I don't know, there's like some people who think that um, men should also get paid maternal leave as well. So like they can also take care of the kids. So it like shouldn't, the burden shouldn't all fall on the mother to take care of the kids. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, I do think sometimes mothers, they play a different role. So um, like a dad's easier to step away because I mean, if you breastfeed, especially dads can't do that. So, I mean, it may be just the mom that gets to do some of the early work, but I do think dad should have the option. Like I know a lot of coworkers, male coworkers who probably would say, I mean, yeah, I want to take that time to spend with my, my child and bond. So, I mean, I think, I think if we're going to look at equal pay, we should also try to look at equal um, expectations too. Like if we if we would think mom needs a break with the child, then maybe dad does too. Yeah, um, an Icelandic lawmaker in full view of her fellow lawmakers and television cameras delivered her remarks with her six-week-old daughter nursing quietly and no one cared. This is not surprising in Iceland, which has long had a liberal view of breastfeeding in public, but what do you think would happen if something like this occurred in the US, especially in the South? And do you approve of her action? Well, I do approve of her actions because, um, I mean, I don't think it should be such a, a stigma or so feels like I feel like breastfeeding is more sexualized than it needs to be here. Um, it's not a sexual act. It's, it's like a, it's an act of parenting. I mean, I think if she had done it here, especially in the South, it would have been a big news story. Um, people would have, everyone would have had their own comments about it and it would have been unnecessarily sensationalized when really stuff happens every day. Um, and it's, uh, it's, yeah, I guess it's a, like just a demonstration of how far we have to go with women's rights. Um, that's something just normal. We can't, um, we can't do. We can't do without everyone commenting on it. And what do you think about the new Supreme Court nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson? How significant is this nomination? And what do you think the impact of this nominee is to the Supreme Court? And what do you think should happen next? 
Um, I mean, I do think it's a it's very significant because it's the first time that I believe a black woman's been nominated. And I mean, that's that's a, a big deal when when barriers come down. Um, someone's got to be the first. Um, and I I mean, I think it opens up doors to people after like not just other black women after her, but just um, people. I mean, I think what should happen next is they should, they should not, I mean, her, the deciding factor should not be her color um, or her gender. It should be, can she do the job? Um, and, and if she gets it, that's great. Cause that'll be another first, but if they have legitimate reason why they think she can't do the job, then, I mean, that should be on the table too. And I guess I say that because, um, I think, I think we'll know when we've made it far enough when race, it's not that it's invisible and no one notices. It's that we, it, it's, it's not um, significant. Like, you know, the, the lawmaker breastfeeding and no one noticed like, oh yeah, that's just normal. Like when people are just who they are um, and that's, um, that's not like the big news story that I'm a black woman. Um, it's that I'm a black woman named Angela and these are my thoughts and you listen to me and you're deciding it. You're deciding something about me based on what I've said and what I've done and not just how I look. So I think it's a, it's a big step because you have to get over um, people noticing and then we'll get to the, to the point where yeah, it's just, okay, they just nominated this person. So yeah, now what? What is she going to say? What, is, what does she stand for? So I don't know if that made sense or answer the question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and in your legal expertise, do you see areas where you can use the law to make changes? Yeah, I'm, I think um, my time at the Florida House of Representatives, I only was there for a couple of years, but... Um, just seeing how laws um, and bills are passed, uh, that's very, that was very informative about like what I can do as a lawyer to help change the law. And I mean, I think a lot of what I do now just in practicing law is that's like the grassroots effort. You defend your clients, you make your arguments and you see the examples of where the law needs to change. And then I think how we use that to change the law is we go to the lawmakers and say, look, this shouldn't happen or this, this part of the system is broken. And I mean, you lobby for it. That's how you get the laws to change and make it better um, because I think the law, a lot of the law is reactive. So if lawmakers don't know what's what the problem is, they don't address it. So I would say know who your lawmaker is and complain, complain, complain when something is wrong. Yeah. 
And do you feel like women are at a disadvantage in the law field? Um, sometimes I do. Um, I think it's changing, but I guess I, I mean, I don't want to say it, it, it sounds like that's like the refrain for nowadays, but uh, it's, it's been a lot of white men who are judges, um, who are like state attorneys, who are in positions of authority, and they decide like um, the policies on prosecuting and the policies on um, just relaxing certain punishments or going after certain laws. And um, like lawmakers, majority of them, um, again, don't want to sound like a, a chorus, but they look a certain way and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, if you look a certain way and you're treated a certain way, then you don't understand all the ways that people can be treated. So if you're, if you're not, if you're, if you're not getting opinions and uh, positions from people who don't look like you, like you can't address um, everyone's needs because you're not, you're not being made aware of them. Um, so I think that sometimes um, women aren't heard or their positions, like their opinions aren't understood because some of the people in power, they just have people around them that just look like them and um, they can't give them that perspective and that understanding that they need and the education that they need to maybe look at it from a different side. Um, and to that credit though, I, I do see a lot more um, like trainings and CLEs and like judicial um, bench books is what they're called to educate judges more on like the other perspectives of, of the world, especially in the area of domestic violence where I work. So, I mean, I hope, I'm hoping it gets better, but um, I mean, we are, we're doing, we are moving in the right direction. Yeah, and how, this is kind of going off of what you said, but how do you think females and other minorities are negatively impacted by the justice system? Um, yeah, I mean, I think in that arena, uh, it does go kind of to the, some of the prosecutors. Um, they don't always look like some of the defendants and and it goes both ways. Um, I think I'm thinking of the Jesse Smollett case where you know you had a you had a black female prosecutor who tried to take it easy like at first on um, the defendants when when it turned out everyone thought he was the one who um, hired some men to beat him beat him up and then blamed it on um, like racial like racial hatred and bigotry and it turned out that that wasn't the case and then and then it came out that the prosecutor was not as harsh as maybe everyone thought she should have been um but that happens a lot on the flip side where you see defendants who look like the prosecutors and they end up getting sentences that you wonder you know if this guy we're a different race, 
what do you've got in the same kind of um, compassion? Uh, so I do think minorities who are not represented um, enough maybe um, in the justice system do suffer negatively. Um, and I don't know if that's always just you need more people that look like you, but I think that would be, I mean, a good start because it's easy to, it's, it's easy to look at your opinion and go with it than to have someone tell you, you need to change your opinion. It's hard to change your opinion when that's your life. That's just how your, your perspective is. That's how you see the world. Um, so if you get people that see the world differently, um, and start having conversations inside the justice system, um, then I then I think that's when you start to have someone expand their perspective and say, oh, well, I didn't think about that. Um, so, I mean, I think we are um, minorities. I think we are definitely adversely affected. But when I hear in the news with cops and people saying, well, I don't, I don't get that. Like, how do you say that? It's, it's because they don't, I mean, yes, that's not your experience, but you have to talk to someone who has a different experience and take that for what it's worth. And what do you think about the teen court system? And as a teen attorney, I mostly see defendants from kind of like marginalized backgrounds go through the teen court system. And what do you think about this and what can we do to prevent this going forward? Um, I, I think I did a, like a teen court case like years ago. And so my understanding is um, like if you have a juvenile defendant and then they get sentenced to be kind of judged by their peers. So, I mean, am I, am I remembering correctly? That's what teen court is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think that's uh, a good way to do it and hopefully have them learn from their missteps in a way that, you know, doesn't affect their ability to move forward. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you address like seeing a lot of kids from marginalized um, backgrounds? I feel like you have to go, you have to find the areas where kids are in need, where kids are getting in trouble and having um, more options to have those missteps. And that's where we need to focus more resources for help. Like, I mean, and how you do that, that is what I, I don't have an answer to, but I don't, it's hard to um, address the problem after like the child is in the system and getting into trouble um, because it's, they've learned that's the way that their life is, that their life should be, is doing these things that are um, causing them to have troubles. So, I mean, the, the best thing that could happen to them is if they find someone in the system that is willing to, you know, take the time and be patient with them and help them relearn or um, just learn new ways that they can be. And I've, I, I will say like a lot of the time 
and I go back to my daughter, I mean, she has a personality that it's either, it'll be like a great good or it'll be just a great, great source of frustration for someone trying to, in authority, trying to deal with her. And I think maybe a lot of kids are like that. It's their, their skills and their abilities. It's not that there's anything good or bad about them, but it's, it's how they learn to use them that will affect them going forward. And I think a lot of them don't have teachers that say, hey, look, I'm gonna steer you towards something that'll help you. So this thing that, you know, let's say you like to, you're moody, you like to, to fight and yell. Well, I mean, that could work against you if you're in front of a cop and you're just yelling at him, or it can work for you if, you know, you become an attorney and you just debate a lot, like you, you find the answer, you research and you come back and you um, push back on people. So it's, I think if we can get to them before begin, they get into the system, that would help. But um, I mean, I would ask, I would ask, do you think teen court gives kids the chance to reassess and then try to do better with having their peers like judge them versus adults? Or do you think it, do you think it doesn't help or doesn't have the same effect as you would want it to? I mean, I think it does help, but I think it doesn't have the effect that you would necessarily want it to in a lot of cases because like um, since because I've been a teen attorney for like a while and I do see like quite a few cases where there it's where it's the same person going through um, so I think maybe like having their peers do it I mean I think it could be a good idea because um, then um, there's more chance of like rehabilitation but also a lot of the peers on the jury, like um, as like a consequence or like a punishment, I guess, is like for the defendant is to do some nights of jury duty. So, and typically um, a couple of the kids on jury duty, like will be people who have been, who have gone through the system themselves in the past. Um, so like they tend to give more like lenient um, like judgments. So, um, so like, usually so not well not usually but like occasionally there will be like a case where like um where the consequence is a lot lighter than intended and when um when there's like a clean slate and stuff like then it kind of gives like kids like oh I can there's going to be numerous chances for me to like do something wrong so like it doesn't really matter because like it won't go on my record anyway so doesn't really matter. So I think like the, um, like in theory, like it's a good system, but I think it can definitely be improved, but yeah. You, uh, do you think maybe um, having some of them be maybe a prosecutor or a defender would be helpful instead of just in the jury? Or is it already like that where some of them can, some of them have to defend once they go through, they have to defend someone else or they have to prosecute someone else. Do you think like that might change their, their, their reasoning to be lenient if it's not just, oh, I just decide listening to the, judge, the, the teen attorneys, but now I have to stand in their shoes and figure out why he shouldn't, like I have to argue a position. Um, I think it 
might help because right now it's like kind of what you said they just listen to the facts and they decide for themselves but I think for the like jury duty they get all has to be like unanimous so like Mm -hmm. um I don't think they would necessarily let someone like argue for a certain position or else like a verdict would never get reached um but yeah I don't know maybe like having or I don't know maybe having like an adult there would help or like in maybe like an adult on the jury but also like it's called teen court so like I don't know like if that would kind of change the whole like system so I don't know yeah do they go back and deliberate yeah like like alone okay yeah yeah that's interesting yeah um okay so kind of going into the next question um you and your sisters are very successful like professors authors and lawyers and what do you think are the main factors that contributed to your success um, honestly, I think um, my parents contributed a lot to just having um, the ability and the opportunity to learn um, and to focus on doing my best. Uh, I, we, we were talking about like period poverty and um, teen court, like a lot of children I mean, the situation or circumstance they're born into, it does sometimes play a lot on how easy or hard it is to succeed. And I mean, I think every successful person um, needs to look at that and say, you know, how can I make it easier for someone trying to succeed and trying to do their best, to do their best um, and not just judge someone saying, oh, you're from, oh, you didn't succeed, it must be because you need to try harder. I mean, I think um, sometimes, I mean, the goal was to try my best, but sometimes even when I didn't try as hard, I still had parents who pushed me to do better and um, like worked hard to make sure I had the ability to just focus on doing better. And that's, I mean, that made a big difference. That changed, I think, the course of my life. So, I mean, I do think it's, I do think parents have a huge role in how successful and, and um, I won't say unsuccessful, but just how hard the struggle is to do your best um, when it comes to raising kids and having children. And I, my parents did a lot, so I'll give them a lot of the credit. Okay. And during the pandemic, when schools and childcare facilities shut down, many women quit their jobs to take care of the family. And it seems that disproportionate housework has fallen on the shoulders of women. And what do you think can be done to change this trend? Mm, that is a good question. Um, I will say in my experience, like, I think a lot of that time I was a single parent and then I got married and it shifted to um, like a two-parent household. Um, but even, even as a single parent, even in two-parent household, a lot, I asked for a lot of support and help from, again, my parents and my extended family. Uh, so, I mean, 
I think we have to, as a society, stop like separating out unit, family unit units into mom and dad and children. And it's just, you have to figure it out in that little circle. Um, I mean, I think we have to, and I, I mean, I think this is a new idea where everyone is just separate and I mean, you have to figure it out without any help or you're a failure or something. I mean, I think probably in the past, a lot of families um, relied a lot more on the extended family unit. Like everyone of the village takes a village to, to raise a child. Um, and I think that when you um, just spread out the burden and responsibility of um, taking care of children, then that helps. Because I, I, I still had to work, I still had to make money, and um, my parents had a little more flexibility because a lot of that um, uh, just force and need to work was gone. I mean, they didn't have little children that they had to feed and take care of. They had grandchildren that, you know, they get spoiled. They had more freedom um, to just be available to help and they wanted to. So, I mean, I don't, other than saying uh, it's gotta be, there have to be more people involved. I don't know how to tackle that problem. And Roe versus Wade is 50 years old now. Do you think we should uphold or overturn this? And if overturned, what would be the impact on women? Um, I think, I mean, I think Roe versus Wade has been attacked since it, you know, since the ruling was entered, they've been chipping away at it. Um, so I don't think it should be overturned but I think it might be time to maybe just codify it, like make it a law instead of just, um, you know, like judicial orchestrating. Um, I think it's time for we as people to say, what do we want our world to look at, look like? And we need to start voting in lawmakers who think that, uh, I don't know why it seems like there's a, a big disconnect between what, what lawmakers are trying to do and what people are saying they want and need. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is we need lawmakers in, in legislatures that are trying to do the will of the people and not the will of the person with the biggest and deepest pockets on that one. Yeah, and Texas passed a law to illegalize abortions over six weeks, and Florida is passing a law to illegalize abortions over 15 weeks. So what do you think about this? And since there are dozens of states trying to pass a similar law, and what do you think about this movement? And if you disagree with those laws, what do you think people can do to change that? And I think, again, um, I, I would say we have to vote voted new lawmakers, like the people that are making the laws, um, we put them there, like we vote them in. And sometimes it's, we vote them in purely because they're a Democrat or they're a Republican. And I know a lot of, I mean, there are politicians who 
manipulate that. Like they are Republican, but like everything else, like in name only, like what, what they think is a Democrat, they think they think is a Democrat and there are Democrats who are Democrats in name only and what they think is maybe Republican aligned. So you, we have to start looking at the people that we're voting in and not the party that we're voting in because I think that does make a difference. Um, if you have more people um, with thoughts and opinions like you, then you'll start seeing more laws that you agree with. And I, I mean, I don't, I, I think if we're gonna give women, I, I think it goes back to the question and the answer I had earlier um, with the, the non-prescription birth control. If you're gonna give women freedom, uh, to do what they will with their bodies, then you have to give them all the tools that they need to take care of them, like their body. Like to just say, just to outlaw and ban abortions after a certain amount of time. And I, I don't know, I think usually they try to either put in a carve out for like a medical emergency, but I think a lot of them are trying to just say blanket, no abortions, or like if someone was um, raped, like just going forward and I mean, they may not know they're pregnant and then they find out and to say, oh, well, you have to have this, this baby, this child, that could be very traumatizing to some women. Um, uh, but at the same time, I do think that, I mean, me personally, like to, to say, you, I mean, you're allowed to just kill this this child that's going inside of you. That's that's a hard struggle for me. I mean I but I but I want but I, I will say as a Christian, um I think God gives me the choice. So I mean I'd want women to have that option to make that choice. If it's something that is medically necessary, um then let it happen. So but if we want, if we disagree with these laws that are being put in place that we have to challenge, then I think at, at some point we start, we have to start looking at the lawmakers that are, you know, putting forth these laws and voting them into law and make a change there. Yeah. And over the last few decades, the nation has made considerable progress in addressing the violence and abuse many women experience at the hands of partners acquaintances and strangers. Despite this progress, threats to women's safety continue to profoundly affect their economic security, health, civic engagement, and overall well-being. Could you please comment your thoughts on this issue? Mm, I mean, I, uh, I, a lot of my grant in this uh, family law arena deals with domestic violence. So, I mean, I do see, um, a lot of that in my day-to-day -day practice as a lawyer. And I mean, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Because for all the education that we seem to be um, like putting out and and, and having people learn and take, especially people in positions of authority. I mean, I still see, like you said, I, I see a lot of, a lot more cases and 
then I see a lot of new judges that come in that, you know, it seems like we have to train them all over again, even though they may have practiced in this area. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely think we have to keep educating people um, and just not people who would be victims, but maybe people who can spot victims. Like maybe, you know, if there's someone in the grocery store who is trying to ask for help, but is going about it the wrong way, then I think maybe if we have more training in areas where you wouldn't think um, that people can spot domestic violence, that might help. Um, like protect more women. Uh, and then I, I had a thought, but I think I, I lost it. Um, because, oh yeah, um, and I think a, a lot of times um, domestic violence victims, they end up with criminal records that um, put them at a disadvantage, like their partner knows how to trigger them so that they get to call the police and have them arrested. And, and now, you know, you have a, a domestic violence victim who's asking for help, but everyone thinks that she's the one who's the abuser. And so it's hard to get out of that cycle when um, people are helping the abuser and not you. Uh, but I mean, there's, there's progress because there's education. Um, but it's, I guess it's not a, we're, we're not to the point where it's just, not acceptable um, to let these things happen. And so maybe we just need more time. That one, I don't know. Yeah, that's great. Globally in 2018, for every 10 victims of human trafficking detected, about five were adult women and two were girls. Most of the detected victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation, around 92% are females. What can we as ordinary people do to alleviate this issue? I would say um, uh, make it more like commonplace. Uh, like I, I'm remembering the campaign they had, they had where um, if you see something, say something. Like it just became commonplace for people to start reporting um, weird things or uh, suspicious things that they saw. Um, so, I, I mean, more public service announcements, just more putting out in the public, hey, look, these are some signs of human trafficking. Um, and then I, because I think I've learned a lot of, or human trafficking increases, like during football games, like sporting events, uh, major events, ma major entertainment events. So, sorry. You're good. Like <laughs> making sure that um, that people know what that is. I guess um, maybe like someone who um, wow. I think it's my daughter. She's learned how to use the phone, so she's mm -hmm. she keeps getting people's phone and calling me. Um, but I, I think if if more people classified certain activities as human trafficking, um, they may be less less uh, willing to do it. Like like less like um like paying for an escort um, at a football game, someone to dance for you, have a good time. 
Like, yeah, they, I mean, yeah, you could have fun with that, but it's trafficking if that person doesn't want to be there or she's there um, because someone um, said you you have to earn me money to do this um, or you have to do this so that I get money and maybe they've um, hooked them on drugs so that it's easier to control them. Like people don't care about the why um, of what some people are having to do, especially in situations where like you're degrading someone else, you're, you're doing something that you wouldn't want someone to do to you. So I think, I think again, we have to make people understand or normalize the wrong in some things, especially when it comes to like movies that um, like make it into entertainment or glorify it. Um, we have to just change our thinking and that comes with education and again, time. Because uh, if, if you think about it, a lot of things that were acceptable when I was a kid, I notice now people are looking back and saying, oh man, that was so wrong. Like, how could you guys do that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like no one said it was bad until you really started looking about it and talking about it. So I think education discussions and like training the next generation to do better will also help. And do you think the women's movement is stronger or weaker today than in the 1970s? What do you think, uh, how do you think things changed for the better or worse based on your personal experience? Um, I mean, I, I would say it's, it's better. I don't, I think we're taking like four steps forward, two steps back, but um, we're getting a little bit more forward. Like we're a little bit ahead. Um, I mean, I, I, and as far as better or worse, I mean, I think it's it's better we see more women in positions of power um, and we're looking at how to put more women in positions of power. But especially with the Me Too movement, I, I feel like maybe power corrupts because you you also see more women in positions of power um, doing things to harm the women who were coming up. So it's like you, whether you have a, a man or a woman in that position, you know, the, the woman coming up is still the one that's taking the brunt of like the harm. So, I mean, maybe it's time and I feel bad. I don't know how to, to say it. So it doesn't, I mean, I'm not trying to minimalize that, you know, women need equality, but I, I mean, we all, if we look at it like everyone needs to be treated like human being, then I wonder if that will help um, make it go faster. But I don't know. It's like it, you can't, you can't point out the wrong because a man does it. And then when you get there, you do that same wrong and try to excuse it because you're a woman. So, I mean, I think sometimes you have to say, okay, how do I treat people as a human being? Not just how do I um, bring women up? Like if, you, if we're all human beings and we're all, we need to be treated as, as humans, 
then what do we need to do to make sure everyone's being treated as human might answer that question too. Well, women are not being treated this way, so let's fix that. Um, so does, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about school dress codes? According to the American Civil Liberties Union, dress codes are legal if they do not treat boys and girls differently, force students to conform to sex stereotypes or censor particular viewpoints. What are your comments on this? Um, I mean, uh, I like in general, I don't mind dress codes um, just because it, it kind of makes it easier for everyone to focus on what you're, what you're there to do. Like you're there to learn. So let's learn, let's play. Let's not, you know, create situations where people are focused on, because it's not always about um, like wearing something that, um, like hurt, like to offend someone else. Maybe it's you don't have the money to buy something to make you look like everyone else. Like everyone's doing this thing, and so you're you're um, pointed out in a way that makes you feel embarrassed, um, and that makes you not want to participate as as much as you would if everyone has uniform. Um, uh, at the same time, like I liked expressing myself with my clothes when, you know, when I got to high school, probably middle school too. So you take away, sometimes you take away some of that creativity where uh, kids get an outlet. I mean, because school, sometimes it's hard. Like you have to learn all these things and pay attention. And sometimes the only way you uh, can free your mind is, what am I gonna wear tomorrow? Or that, that looks nice, or I wanna sew this. So, I mean, it's a balancing act, but uh, I agree as long as you don't um, censor anyone's you know, viewpoint um, and kind of treat everyone the same, then I don't know if I see the harm. Like, I can see both, both sides of it, but yeah. I mean, I'd... Mm -hmm. So, um, um, can you talk, sorry, can you talk about the gender roles in literature? Um, how are women defined in classics and what is the new trend in literature about the leading female characters? That one, I, mean, I haven't, I haven't read much lately except cases and case law. Um, but I mean, from, from like the classics, women are, Sometimes it seems like there are more props, unless you're like reading Emily Dickinson or, or something like that. Um, but it's it's usually a love story. And um, I remember uh, Bridget Jones's diary where that was big. And yeah, it, it's like you, you're not complete unless you're, you found your soulmate or this man um, and I think that's, I mean, if we're turning away from that, I think that's okay because that's not what your life is. Your life is you live it, you have fun, you have friends, um, you have opinions and thoughts and you have a reason to be in the world. And if you meet a partner to go through that with, that's great. Um, but I don't think that should be the purpose of your life 
is to find someone or find a partner. So I don't know if there's a new trend that's maybe trending away from like the classic love story where you have to be with someone, but if there is, if it is, that's good. I like that. Um, someone on the internet mocked a NATO country stating that their Secretary of Defense were all females while Russia's were primarily male. And what is your response to those people and how does that reflect on women's role in modern society? I mean, I, I think it's, if someone could mock, uh, you know, mock the Secretary of Defense, um, but they were all females and have people not point them out and say, well, so? And I think that shows that, I mean, we still are living in a very gender stereotyped society where men, you know, they're the soldiers, they're the fighters and women are the, you know, domestic types where we just take care of stuff at home. And um, I mean, that's not reality today. A lot of, a lot of women have to, they have to go out and fight and, you know, work and sometimes men are better suited to take care of things at home and I think life would be easier if you know sometimes we could afford to have the woman work outside the home and to do like what is traditionally male and have the men you know, take care of the kids or you know take care of the house or deal with that stuff um, but I also think, I mean, I, I think that women probably have, <laughs> it's gonna a more strategic way of fighting. I, th I think if more women probably had the opportunity to figure out wars, it'd be less people, there'd be less boots on the ground because um, I mean, this might, this might be a bit stereotypical, but I think women strategize more like we don't want um, straight up confrontation, but we want to win just like everyone else. So um, I guess I would say I don't want necessarily, I don't want it to be equal where everyone says we're the same, but um, I want it to be equitable where it's fair. Like men and women are different, but what's a fair way to dole out responsibilities um, and is it fair that you know a man doing the same job as a woman gets paid you know much more than she would so maybe the maybe the question is how do we it's not how do we make it equal but how do we make it fair yeah and what is your personal definition of a feminist <laughs> I mean I don't no, I think a feminist for me would be someone who, you know, wants, again, wants women to be treated fairly, um, uh, like up against everyone else in the world. Just wants, uh, uh, I mean, I guess that would be a different one. But yeah, I, I think I would say my my definition of feminist is making sure women are treated as human beings too, and we all are treated fairly. Okay, and it feels 
that there is a war on women trying to turn back many gains they have won throughout the years and how can we combat this war? Hmm. That, I don't know. I mean, I think having more voices speak up. I think we're in a very unique position where you have the internet and you have access to so many voices. Um, I think the way to speak up is to galvanize those voices. Everyone um, come together, find, find a group, get, get a group of voices that are trying to affect change and like find out how to change the world. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with who we put in power, who we put in positions of authority, who we put in positions to make the laws and to make foreign policy and to make um, domestic policy and job policies and who we support with our pocketbooks. Like who do we promote? Companies that are fair to women and fair to men or companies that, um, you know, they're trying to make their profit margin as wide as possible. So you, know, you get you get a product, but they no matter what, they make money. Um, so I think to do that, I mean, we, we, we can all put our voice out there and we can find the information and learn and research online. And I think the way we make change and to fight back against the things that we don't like is to figure out you know, who's making these laws, who's doing this, and to remove them and put someone in their position who will do better. And lastly, what would you like to see happen when it comes to gender equality in the next few years? Um, I mean, I, I'd like to see um, it become like more history. Uh, I like for things to start looking more fair for women, um, where uh, more transparent too. Like I said, we won't, you don't start to know these things and to know there's a problem until you know the facts. You, you, you see transparently what's going on. So I guess I would like to see um, a more transparent private sector where maybe people have access to the information like, okay, what is this person making versus his female counterparts? And that, you know, then we know whether or not it's fair. Um, and then hopefully what I'd like to see is people talking about it and um, figuring out that in order to, to change the system and to do better, that we, maybe we, you know, find ways to put pressure on the system so they remove the CEO who thinks it's okay that you know women are paid seven cents on the dollar compared to a man or something, or the lawmaker that thinks it's okay to um, just outright ban abortions after a certain period of time. We um, vote them out. You find out what you have to do to put pressure on these you know, system points that are causing the issue. And then we put the pressure on them. And then maybe we'll start to see some someone in power or in a position of authority who is doing or people who are doing the things that we want you know, to see happen. Yeah, um, that's all the questions I have, but thank you so much for doing this. Nope.